Hey guys, how's it going? Jovan Hutton Bulletser here. I am going to do a flashback tonight. Um, I'm going to do a historic flashback that will help everyone understand exactly where we are in this process in the United States of America. And the question I posed, which I put on the screen, is do you think it's possible? that the United States of America could be invaded or can America be turned socialist? Can our country be taken over? Many times I have talked about this topic in the show, and I think it's interesting that what I need to do here is I just want to jog everybody's memory. We're going to go back 50 years ago. Not that you should remember this at all. Not at all. But we're going to go back actually a little over 50 years ago. What's important here is I always try to teach you that history matters, right? I'm not new to my radio program, by the way, folks. I do normally record 7 a.m., 7 p.m., seven days a week, Central Standard Time, so you remember it. And yes, yeah, sometimes uh, we didn't get the uh, date right, but thank you for telling us we got it right and the, and the ticker bar across the bottom. Uh, but I just want to welcome everybody here, but I want to give you a warning. Tonight's program will be tough. Tonight's program may on some level make you feel somewhat hopeless. And we only learn in adversity. We only learn in pain. Pain is not to make you hurt. Pain is to make us grow. That is the utility of pain. Burn yourself on a stove. Yeah, it hurts like hell. But is it designed really to make you hurt? No, it's designed to force you into the uncomfortable situation where you have to change. And that's where we are right now. If you have never reached out to a friend of yours, that is a Democrat, or if you've never reached out to a family or friend of yours that told you you're a whack job, you're a conspiracy theorist, tonight is the night you want to reach out to them and tell them to tune in. What I'm going to share with you with commentary may for many of you be very eye-opening and sobering. However, I think for the people that um, have called you a conspiracy theorist, the people that have told you you're screwed in the head, the people that told you that Donald J. Trump and Republicans were the ones that were destroying America, tonight's the night you want them to tune in. Trust me. If you are an American who happens to have a little more melanin in your skin than us, 
otherwise known as a black American. And you were always told um, you've been oppressed. You're being used by the white man. Or if you have a child that's an Antifa or far left, you could right now ask them to do one favor for you. One favor. And just get them to tune in to tonight's program. We're going to go back in time 50 years. We're going to watch a film together. I'm going to provide commentary as we do it. But this promises to be very eye-opening. I'll give you a minute to uh, get everybody wrangled up. Here we go. Cut the crap. How many times a day do you want to say that to politicians, the elite, the loony liberals, the fake news media, and the gender-confused, emotional, socialist, snowflake crowd? Cut the crap is your secret weapon for fighting for our freedoms and our great republic. It all begins with a massive mental enema, freeing you from the toxic news and politically correct views, which constipate your consciousness with stinking thinking. Your host, Joe Von Hutton Pulitzer, is known for calling out politicians and telling them to cut the crap. You've seen him on virtually every television network and listened to him on Coast to Coast Radio. And now he's here to help you learn to fight for America. Culture, race, and American politics, they all have one thing in common. They all need to cut the crap. Now, here's your host, Joe Von Hutton Pulitzer. Interesting here, folks. The powers that be greater than us on socialist media may actually be kind of messing with us tonight, but that's okay. That's quite okay. We'll get through it. I'm going to take you to a time when this man, uh, G. Edward Griffin, was touring around the United States of America at a time during our country where our country knew that there was definitely a socialist, Marxist, communist problem in the United States of America. This film that you're going to be watching is from a little over 50 years ago. This very sobering conversation is before information about how to take over a country not by war, but how to take over a country by culture was being promoted and talked about by the socialist countries, the communist countries that wanted to take over the United States of America. So as we go through this tonight, we're going to drop in. I want you to keep one thing in mind. This is over 50 years ago. I want you to see if the warnings are valuable today, but more important, if the tech, uh, the techniques and the tactics that were talked about, that were printed, that were planned for the United States of America were executed upon. The title of this presentation is 
more deadly than war. But the subject matter itself is revolution. We're going to examine in quite a bit of detail the communist theory and practice of revolution, particularly as applied to the United States. Now this will not be something dreamed up out of thin air. This will be the strategy as taught by them and advocated by them in their own manuals, in their textbooks, and in their schools. Now the organization of this material will lead to three rather startling conclusions. The first is that the communist program for revolution in America is divided into two phases, violent and nonviolent. The second conclusion is that the strategy for violent revolution calls for chaos, anarchy, mass confusion and panic among the people, a crisis in government, and then out of the vacuum, the sudden seizure of power by communist-led guerrilla bands. The third conclusion is that the nonviolent phase of revolution actually is more important to the communists and more potentially dangerous to us. Now the strategy for this phase calls for the gradual transition of our government into a communist regime done peacefully and legally but under the banner of socialism. This then is the outline of the material that lies ahead. So let's start right at the beginning with conclusion number one which is that the communist program for revolution in America is divided into two phases, violent and nonviolent. Now a good place to begin is with this communist booklet entitled On the Nature of Revolution, the Marxist Theory of Social Change. It was written by Herbert Apthaker, one of the leading theoreticians of the Communist Party in this country. And on page 11, Apthaker says, the equating of violence with the nature and process of revolution is not correct. Violence may or may not appear in such a process, and its presence or absence is not a determining feature of the definition. Now this comes as quite a surprise to many of us because for years we've been used to thinking of communist revolutions only as those which involve the overthrow of governments by force and violence. Now that entire phrase has been written and spoken so often as a single concept that many of us haven't even considered the possibility that the communists might have another approach to their goal, that they might overthrow the government without force and violence, that they might in fact plan to come to power through means that properly could be called peace and politics. Now in order to go any further, it'll be necessary for us to define a few terms. When the communists speak of the two kinds of revolution, they don't come right out and say so in plain English, of course not. You see, they claim to be practicing something called scientific Marxism. And so they have to dress up these crude concepts in elaborate phraseology. For instance, when the communists speak of violent revolution, they describe it as a war of national liberation. Now the so-called theory behind this is that the people of the country marked for takeover supposedly are an oppressed people. They're dominated by an imperialistic foreign power that has colonized them and exploited them. And so the communists claim that it's their duty, their historic duty, to liberate them from the yoke of fascism or imperialism or colonialism or whatever. Thank you. In the name of revolution, what he said was they will raise their head up 
to tell people that they are here to save them. They are here to rescue them. They are here to make life better because you are an oppressed people. So one of the first tactics of a communist takeover, and most people don't understand there is a path to it, socialism, you know, Marxism, onto communism. It is a progress. But the key thing you need to ask your here, yourself here is, are we hearing in today's society about the ills of America, that it's colonialistic, that it's that we're all fascist, and that the left needs to save us. They need to save the people of color. They need to save the uh, minorities. They need to save women from having their bodies controlled. I call it white savior syndrome. The fellow we're listening to, G. Edward Griffin, uh, was probably about just about 40 years old when he gave this speech. He's still alive um, and talking about this. I am hoping to get him on the program. And that's part of why I'm playing this for you. I want you to be familiar with his work. And he's still fighting the fight. And hopefully we're going to be able to bring him on. But I want you to hear the first pin, the first grenade to throw in this peaceful takeover is to isolate a group and then play like you're their friend because they've been oppressed, suppressed, taken over, colonialized by fascist, and you want to liberate them. Does that sound familiar? Let's continue. Now, naturally, the communist orientation of the movement is played down. They prefer to identify themselves usually as a people's army of liberation or a national liberation front. Of course, this is the kind of guerrilla warfare we've seen used in China, Algeria, Cuba, South Vietnam, and many other places around the world. But there are other phrases also used to describe the same process. Occasionally, they'll refer to this violent type of revolution as an anti-imperialist war, or an anti-colonialist war, but they all equal the same thing. Wars of national liberation, anti-imperialist wars, and anti-colonialist wars are all phrases used to describe that aspect of communist revolution aimed at overthrowing the government by means of force and violence. One of the mantras of Black Lives Matter was that they are tired of imperialist white supremacists that have colonized them and taken them over and suppressed them. And they use that suppression to gain sympathy, but also to find protection from the fact that they're about to turn violent. And they use it to say that it excuses violence. Does this sound familiar? To describe their nonviolent revolution, the communists most often use the term proletarian revolution, but they also refer to it as the socialist revolution and sometimes 
as the anti-monopoly struggle. But here again, they all add up to the same thing. The proletarian revolution, the socialist revolution, and the anti-monopoly struggle are all merely different ways in which the communists describe their strategy for overthrowing the government through non-violent means. Well, all right, having defined some of the key phrases, we can return now to the communist literature and be able to understand what they mean when they use these words. Now, in 1960, the representatives from communist parties all over the world gathered in Moscow and issued a joint declaration which included this statement. Our time, whose main content is the transition of capitalism to socialism, is a time of socialist revolutions and national liberation revolutions. In other words, simply stated, we're living in an era of two kinds of revolution, one violent and the other nonviolent. Now, here's a document published by the Communist Party in this country in 1968. It's entitled, The New Program of the Communist Party USA, a Second Draft. And on this subject, here's what it says. Contemporary revolutions bear two distinctive marks. They are socialist, they are anti-imperialist. More than a billion human beings are now embarked on socialist revolution. A larger number is in varying stages of revolution for national liberation. Well, in order to relate this general concept of two kinds of revolution to the specific application here in the United States, it'll be necessary for us to examine rather closely the communist position on what they describe as the Negro question. Now, basically summarized, the communist position on the Negro question is as follows. As early as 1928, the communists declared that the racial differences among our people constituted the weakest and most vulnerable point in our social fabric. By constantly probing and straining at this one spot, they calculated that eventually the cloth could be torn apart and that Americans could be divided, weakened, and perhaps even set against each other in open combat. They said in no unmistakable terms that the Negro people, because of their secondary social status and their predominant working class composition, offered greater revolutionary possibilities than any other cross-section of the population. To develop these possibilities, the communists proclaimed that the American Negro constituted a separate nation within a nation, a colony within the continental borders of the United States. The people of this nation were said to be oppressed and exploited by colonialist, imperialist, racist America. Consequently, the Communist Party called for their liberation, their right to self-determination, to break away from the United States and to set up their own nation within our borders. Now to bring this about, of course, force and violence must be used. A war of national liberation must be fought. The territory designated for this nation to be liberated was the Black Belt in the South, those counties and states in which the Negro population was dominant. When established, the new nation was to have a Soviet-type government and be totally subservient to the Communist Party. But, and this is extremely important, the Communists made it clear from the very beginning that they could never hope to capture all of the United States with a war of national liberation, only part of it. You see, elsewhere in the world, the segment of the population supposedly liberated by the Communists 
has been a majority sect. The peasants in China, the Muslims in Algeria, all the people in Cuba. But in the United States, our Negro population is in the minority. And even if the communists should be successful in creating similar liberation movements among other segments of our people, as they're trying to do, for instance, among Mexican-Americans, Puerto Ricans, and even American Indians, even if they should succeed and then amalgamate all of these together into one large liberation movement, it still adds up to a minority of the total population. And the communists are not stupid. They realize that revolution of force and violence dependent upon a minority is doomed to ultimate failure, except in those areas where they actually do constitute a majority. But they aren't going to settle for just part of the United States. They want all of it. And so they made it clear long ago that their violent war of national liberation must be secondary to the nonviolent proletarian revolution. To take the United States, all of the United States, it'll be necessary, they say, to involve white people as well as black to create a broad coalition, a revolutionary link between the civil rights movement, organized labor, peace groups, student dissidents, and in general, to escalate their revolution in America from race war to class war. So let's analyze this for a moment. In recap, they knew that the dividing point would be to take the minorities of the United States of America and proselytize them that they've been treated horribly and they should revolt. But even if they could do that, they still would not have enough together to get it done. So what they would need to do, and you should have caught this, was take everything that has to do with minority, civil rights, saying you stand for people's liberties, Native Americans, and you have to push all of these groups into one big group and try to get control of them. And then once you get control of them, and speak for them, then you can put the next phase of this horrible takeover in action. Now this, in a nutshell, is the communist position on the Negro question. Let's turn now to the record and see how the communists themselves explain it. Now, this communist booklet entitled American Negro Problems was published in 1928. It was written by John Pepper, alias Joseph Pogani. Now, Pogani was sent to this country as the personal envoy of Joseph Stalin, and his specific mission was to bring the American Communist Party into line with the policies and directives from Moscow, particularly with regard to the Negro question. And here is what Pogani said. The Communist Party of America, in its fight against imperialism, must recognize clearly the tremendous revolutionary possibilities of the liberation movement of the Negro people. It is the basic duty of the Communist Party to develop all revolutionary possibilities of the Negro race. The Black Belt in the South constitutes virtually a colony within the body of the United States of America. Self-determination means the right to establish their own state, 
to erect their own government if they choose to do so. The Communist Party of America must come out openly and unreservedly for the right of national self-determination for the Negroes. But it would be a major mistake to believe that there can be any other revolution in imperialist America than a proletarian revolution. Now let me repeat that last sentence because it's the key to this entire presentation. It would be a major mistake to believe that there can be any other revolution in imperialist America than a proletarian revolution. Well, this is the key to every bit of this. Those who want to take over our country realized years and decades and decades ago that they could not do it by attacking our country by conventional warfare and violent means. They even felt they might not be able to do it by creating an internal civil war, but they would use it if they had to because they could push people to that means. So what they needed to do was to take over the ideology to work on people's brains and make them feel oppressed and then to infiltrate into the systems, government, schools, and everything and take it over from the inside. You have to ask yourself, does that sound familiar to what we're dealing with today? Moving forward to the year 1935, we come to this communist booklet entitled The Negroes in the Soviet America, written by James Ford and James Allen. Beginning on page 24, the general strategy is laid out in rather graphic form. You see, there's a major heading here entitled The Negro and Revolution. Directly beneath this, there's a subheading entitled Two Revolutions in One. And then within this section, it says, the problem of Negro liberation has two aspects. We shall first consider each separately and then show how the solution for the first flows into the solution for the second. Now, the next subheading then is entitled The Rebellion of an Oppressed Nation. And the section that follows that describes the violent revolution that must be fought to liberate the black belt of the South. And then finally, over in the next page, there's another subheading entitled The Proletarian revolution. And here we begin to get an idea finally of what this phase of the revolution is all about. It says, capitalism is decaying. It is an outworn system. Capitalism is based upon the private ownership of machines, factories, railroads, land, and all other means of production. Only one thing can do away with the basis for the existence of capitalism, the expropriation of the capitalists. And by the way, I'm sure you realize that everyone here, by communist definition at least, is a capitalist. So you should feel good to know that there are those who are planning your expropriation someday. In order to expropriate the capitalists, the workers first need to discard the existing government machinery and to institute a working class government. Under this new workers' government, the building of socialism begins. Now, exactly what that's all about, the building of socialism, we'll get to in a moment. But finally, on page 28, under the third subheading entitled The Combination of Two Revolutions, 
the communists reveal how the two phases of their revolution are related to each other and which of the two is most important to them. Between the proletarian revolution and the revolution of the Negro people, there is a living link. This is the working class. Here reposes the leadership of the two aspects of the revolution. But the Negro communist is first and foremost the exponent of the proletarian revolution. Well, the Negro communist. Now, what he's explaining here is they realize that not only did they have to try to control people of minorities and push all of these groups into one, but they needed to have people of color that would take up the mantle knowing knowing that it is a Marxist communist agenda and all its variation and let those people go out into the community and continue to recruit and to expand for the cause. Hold on, we'll catch up here in a moment. All of the... 1935 is a long time ago. And sometimes we hear it said that the communists have since abandoned this concept. But ladies and gentlemen, they cannot abandon it for the simple reason that if they did so, they'd be abandoning the classic dual form of revolution dictated by Marxism-Leninism. They'd cease to be communists. To justify violence, they have to be able to claim that they're liberating people. And if people are to be liberated, then it's necessary to go through the motions, at least, of pretending that they have a right to form a nation of their own. And so the communist position on the Negro question today is no different than it was back in 1928. Now, Political Affairs is the official monthly magazine of the Communist Party in this country. The date on this particular issue is November 1968. The feature article for that month was the right of black America to create a nation, written by communist theoretician Claude Lightfoot. Now, Lightfoot points out that many years of migration of Negroes into the North and of Caucasians into the South have altered the population statistics to the point where the black belt is considerably smaller today than it was when the communist position on the Negro question was first drafted. Therefore, he says, the concept of a Negro nation must not necessarily be restricted to just one large territory in the South, but must be expanded now to include the so-called ghetto areas in the North. So having updated the basic strategy to reflect present realities, he then repeats the same old communist line. On page 9, he says, We should call for a plebiscite of all black Americans on whether they want to remain in the general commonwealth or to establish another nation within the continental United States. Thus, the slogan of self-determination today means the struggle for the right of black America to form a nation if it elects to do so. Now, in passing, ladies and gentlemen, you may have wondered why the Communist Party has been a staunch supporter of the drive to place a black studies curriculum into our high schools and colleges. Well, 
The reason becomes obvious the minute you take a look at the textbooks and the study guides. The net effect of these courses on the students who enroll is to create a consciousness of nation. By stressing the historical and cultural differences between our black and white citizens instead of the similarities, the predictable impact upon the student is such that he'll view the communist call for a separate nation with far more acceptance than his parents did. Under the guise of academic balance, these courses have become a brilliant device for conditioning young people to accept still one more part of the total program for revolution. Conditioning young people to accept and take part in the coming revolution. Condition them for it. The evolution of this, meaning the radicalization of the prepping's done. The prepping's been done for a long time with the race wars. With you've been oppressed, you've been oppressed, you've been oppressed. They've moved from oppressed to hate police. Now that they've got the hate police and hate your country and hate your flag and everybody who's white is a supremacist, now it's the time they push for hard revolution. You know this right now as critical race theory. This is a key step. You can use the things going on in our society today to understand not only was this a plan, but how close this is to them winning. We'll continue. But returning uh, once again to Claude Lightfoot, after having called for a separate nation, he then repeats the ever important point that as important as the national liberation movement may be, it still must be secondary in importance to the nonviolent, peaceful transition to communism called the socialist revolution. He says, from this it follows that the advocates of a black nation must identify themselves with all that is required to set up a socialist America, recognizing that black people alone could never destroy capitalism. To digress again for just a moment, I'd like to point out that this concept of two kinds of revolution is really the basis for that much publicized split between Moscow and Peking. The Moscow group says, there are two kinds of revolution, violent and nonviolent. We believe in using either or both, depending on which combination proves to be the most effective. But as true Marxist-Leninists, we believe that the gradual, nonviolent approach is more effective in today's modern world. To which the Peking group shouts in reply, heresy, heresy. True, there are two kinds of revolution, and we to practice either or both, but we are the true Marxist-Leninists, for we believe that the quick, violent approach is more effective in today's modern world. And there's the total difference between the two factions of world communism. Each claims to be more correct in its interpretation of classical communist strategy. But as far as the United States is concerned, you can be sure that it makes precious little difference. Both types of revolution are being used against us today. Both are enhanced by the presence of the other, and both lead to exactly the same destination. All right, let's move along now to the second conclusion. The strategy for violent revolution in America calls for chaos, anarchy, destruction, a crisis in government, mass confusion and panic among the people, and then out of the vacuum, 
the sudden seizure of power by communist-led guerrilla bands. Crisis, fear, riots, confusion. Forcing us all to fight a bunch of little bitty battles, like them trying to sexualize our children. They are creating a tremendous amount of skirmishes of attacks that they know are clearly our values. It's part of why they put transgendered folk at the highest levels in our government to rub it in our faces because what they're doing is they're making us chase all of these little bitty things. People getting arrested for peacefully protesting January 6th versus BLM folks not getting arrested. All of these little bitty things are a distraction, and it is a total distraction from the most important thing, and that's paying attention to elections and getting the elections right. Because all of these distractions are designed to keep you off balance and in fear, like the mandates, while they take over the government. All of this is about doing so many things that seem vile at one time in every category, closing down churches with the mandates, putting parents uh, in jail for not wearing a mask during the mandates, all the things you thought would never happen, teaching your precious children to hate themselves because they have a different color skin. It is all about tiny little distractions to have all of us looking over here and not paying attention to the most important thing that in this design, the ultimate design, is they will control the government and then it will be all over. Now, what's really interesting here, Jim Cook says, nobody's invading us. They're destroying us every day because of Illuminati, Zionists, and elites are the ones in charge. Most people don't even know the definitions of those words, especially Zionists as a Jew, who people call me a Zionist. It's overused. It's ignorant. It is us dividing people in little bitty small groups so we can go look at them. So, yeah, you could run around chasing Zionist, Illuminati, Freemasons. Or you could focus on election integrity because that's the only thing that matters. Or you can say somebody doesn't pray right, seven rays of light coming out of their head because it's a distraction. It is all a distraction on both sides. If you're chasing anything else other than election integrity, you have been distracted. That is the key, and it happens on both sides. Don't waste your time with critical race theory fighting it. Fight it with the ballot, and certainly don't waste your time with Illuminati, Zionists, and crap. Fight it with the ballot and put people in. With the ballot, with the ballot. 
focus, focus, focus. Everything depends upon us getting our ballots right. Now, this is the kind of activity, the overthrow of government by force and violence, that most people think of when they speak about communist revolutions. So there's no need to belabor the point. But I'm going to take just a moment to show the extent to which the communists actually are planning to use this kind of revolution against the United States. Now, this is not so well known. Now, here is a book that I think ought to be in every home library. It's entitled Color, Communism, and Common Sense by Manning Johnson. Now, as you can see from his photograph, Manning Johnson was a Negro, and he was also a member of the Communist Party. He joined the party as a young man because he honestly believed that the communists were trying to improve the conditions of his people. He was a dedicated communist, and eventually he rose to one of the highest ranks. He was appointed to the National Negro Commission of the Communist Party USA. But after many years, Manning Johnson finally came to the realization that the communists weren't the least bit interested in improving the conditions of the Negro people. He discovered that instead they were merely planning to use his people, and these are his words, to use them as cannon fodder in a bloody revolution to destroy America. And when he woke up to this, he dropped out of the party and devoted the rest of his life trying to alert his fellow citizens of all races to the true nature of the Communist Party as he knew it to be from the inside. And this book contains much of that story. I wish I had the time to examine the entire volume with you page by page, but here at least is one short quotation that pertains to the immediate topic. Manning Johnson said, Black rebellion was what Moscow wanted. Bloody racial conflict would split America. During the confusion, demoralization and panic would set in. Then finally the Reds say, now at this point he quotes verbatim from a communist directive that he studied while inside the party. Workers stop work. Many of them seize arms by attacking arsenals. Street fights become frequent. Under the leadership of the communist party, the workers organize revolutionary committees to be in command of the uprising. Armed workers seize the principal government offices invade the residences of the president and his cabinet members, arrest them, declare the old regime abolished, establish their own power. Now, here is a piece of vicious communist propaganda that perhaps some of you have seen. It's called The Crusader. It's published periodically in Red China and is widely circulated through the Negro communities here in America. It's written by Robert F. Williams, one of the organizers of the Revolutionary Action Movement, better known as RAM. Williams also was the president of the local chapter of the NAACP in Monroe, North Carolina. At that time, needless to say, he wasn't telling very many people that he was also a member of the Communist Party. Now, one day back in 1961, he decided to start a small war of national liberation of his own. Apparently, he was too impatient to wait for the big signal. So finally, to avoid prosecution for assault with a deadly weapon and for kidnapping, he fled to Cuba and then to Red China, where he now writes communist propaganda. One other thing you should know about Robert Williams is that recently he was elected by members of SNCC, CORE, RAM, the NAACP, and similar groups as the president in exile of something called the Republic of New Africa. 
Following the communist line in every detail, these men claim that they're the representatives of a new government and a new nation within the continental borders of the United States. They issued a demand to the State Department that a large segment of land be turned over to them as their rightful territory. The proclamation said that they're now prepared to negotiate in good faith the peaceful transfer to them of the southern portion of the United States. The implication being, of course, that if they don't get it peacefully, then they'll just have to take it by force and violence. Already, the Republic of New Africa has established a central headquarters in Mississippi, and its leaders in the north are actively recruiting a Black Panther guerrilla force and what they call a Revolutionary Freedom Corps, the RFC, from among black militant students to act as organizers and to set up local provisional government. I have to address this. And here's what I have to address. Jim Cook says, I'm not ignorant. I'm 62 years old. And if you don't think the Rothschilds, Rockefellers, DuPonts, and Christian Zionists aren't influenced the government, you should probably study our history and who supplied financial Nazis truly behind 9-11. And don't suggest I'm stereotyping Jews. Liberty never forget. Levon Affair explained that, Revelations 2 and 9. Okay, Jim, here's what I'll explain. You're a fucking idiot. Other than being a fucking idiot, I've hatched, I've personally written over 300 history books. The lesson I called out to you, Jim, is you are a distraction. Instead of focusing and bitching about what's at hand with all this other shit that you can't do dick fuck about, the Rothschilds, the DuPonts, or the Christian Zionist, you can take your little pity party, sit on a, be- a bench, and cry your fucking ears out, your eyes, everything. Because it's not going to matter regurgitating bullshit like that. See, that bullshit's a distraction. What we have to do is get off that kind of bullshit distraction where people can get into a, a thread of a thousand fucking idiotic comments debating each other on what's really a Zionist and what's this and fucking focus on the issue of election integrity. So, Jim, I'm not calling you ignorant. I'm calling you a fucking distracted idiot. Am I clear? As they call them in the so-called ghetto areas. But the reason I've mentioned all this is merely to introduce properly one Robert F. Williams, the president in exile of this Republic of New Africa and the author of The Crusader. Now here is what Robert Williams says. The lifeblood of U.S. capitalism is its productive capacity and its extensive commerce. If these two factors were to become paralyzed and rendered sterile, the orderly function of the government establishment would degenerate into a state of chaos and the superstructure of the system would collapse. The more automated a society is, the more vulnerable it is to forces of calamity. What would highly mechanized America be without electrical power? What would it be without modern transportation? What would it be without its industrial capacity? And then having asked these questions, Robert Williams proceeds to explain in minute detail exactly how to manufacture the devices that can be used by a mere handful of people to ensure that highly automated America will lose its electrical power, its modern transportation, and its industrial capacity. 
I can assure you, ladies and gentlemen, that less than a dozen people, if they know what they're doing, can reduce any of our major cities into a helpless, seething mass of confusion, panic, and death. Okay, now I will address this one. Because you have to understand where we set today to deal with it. And everybody asks, well, how can we fix our elections? We can fix our elections by focusing on our elections and who we put in office instead of treating it like a lottery ticket, which I did. I never voted for a, cared about a city manager or a school board member or any of that. I'm part of the problem. I didn't vote for mayors. Who gave a crap? And a lot of us treated that way. We voted it like a lottery ticket. We'll wait till it's a billion dollars and we'll play. We'll vote only president. This happened on our watch. That's why bitching doesn't help. And the lamest stuff in the world. See, I understand leftists. They look us in the eye and they say, we're going to fucking take over your country and have sex with your kids. And you can't do crap about it. See, they call it like it is. On the right, we get distracted by petty shit. They're the Illuminati. Did you see him sitting there and he did the special signal? And you talk about that shit. Instead of focusing on election integrity and sticking together. Now to the point he just talked about. He talked about our infrastructure system. They will learn our infrastructure system and understand how to take us down. I've talked about this before in my lecture called Red Dawn 2.0. And I told you, in the United States of America, we used to be the leader. We were the originators in drone technology, military and everything. But because politicians and laborers moved everything offshore, everything offshore, And complain, drones are dangerous. If people get a drone, they can spy on me sunbathing in my backyard. It's a vision of privacy. All of our drone crap moved overseas. Our military drones, the circuits in them are made by the Chinese. But that's not even the worst of it. In the United States of America, when you want to fly a, fly a drone, you know where you get your drone license now that's required? That license and information comes out of Beijing, China. When you file a flight plan for your drone, it comes out of Beijing, China. Oh, that's no big deal. Oh, you don't think it's a big deal? How do all of our power line companies, our power grid in the United States get measured right now? How do they stay on top of it? They fly drones over our power lines. And they inspect them with video footage. Where does the video footage go? Beijing, China. They now know every inch of our infrastructure. You can take one 40-foot piece of chain between a few drones, drop it in the right place. All of Los Angeles and Southern California will go down. But you know what the real problem is? The real problem is the transformers and equipment made to get all of those stations back up are made in China and takes years. And we don't have them here in the United States anymore because we're not manufacturing here anymore. Oh, 
all of the minerals to make these batteries for our cars. We have them all right here in the United States. Environment, environment. The lesbian one-eyed toe worm is going to get killed if you mine. Therefore, who mines all of the rare earth minerals to make those batteries? China. It's here. It's done. It's mapped. It's planned. That is why we focus on election integrity and do not get distracted by that other shit. We fix this with the ballot. Just one person, one person can poison the city's entire water supply or destroy the main aqueduct or blow up the principal pumping stations. And where would people in Los Angeles, for instance, get a drink of water if it didn't come out of a pipe? And how long can a human being survive without water? Four or five days, perhaps? But long before that, there'd be tens of thousands of people dead in our cities. Not from thirst, but because they were unable to defend what water they had from roving bands of desperate people who were dying of thirst. And that's thinking only of the loss of water. In your mind's eye, compound that with no food, no electricity, no way to dispose of sewage, no police protection, no water pressure to fight fires, no radio or TV, no telephone, no buses, no gasoline for your car, no way to escape, no place to go if you could. And don't think for a minute that the countryside would be immune from disaster either. In this issue of the Crusader, the communists call not only for extensive chaos within the cities, but for putting to the torch every village, every forest, every field, and every barn. The plan is for raging fires from one city to the next. The reason? Well, first, there's the value of sheer destruction. Secondly, it would force us to deploy our defenses and rescue units over the widest possible area. The communists point out that as long as our police and National Guard remain concentrated, they're invincible. But if they can be forced to spread out over the entire city and into the countryside as well, then they can be picked off from ambush one by one. And the third value of massive fire to the communists is psychological. The average American, they say, soft and decadent when he sees billows of black smoke rising from one horizon to the other, when at night the only light he has to see by is the flickering red from flames leaping into the sky, he'll become paralyzed with fear and panic. He'll run away and hide and do nothing to interfere with the guerrilla bands as they strike at the community's power centers. The Crusader explains how to set up sniper units in crowded metropolitan areas, how to manufacture jumbo Molotov cocktails, the gallon jug size, and how to mix the gasoline with certain ingredients to make it burn like napalm, how to pour gasoline into utility manholes in the streets to set fire to the main telephone cables, how to put sulfur tips from matches into air conditioning units and blow up large buildings, how to ignite gas mains and oil storage tanks, it explains how radio-controlled model airplanes can be used to fly explosive heavily guarded fences into gasoline storage areas or munition stockpiles. It even calls for infiltration into the National Guard units. Revolutionaries... I can't let this one go. So many people believe what they just see in propaganda. The NAFTA deal 
an American business building deal. The NAFTA deal is exactly what was sending the majority of our stuff to foreign countries. It was the incentive to send stuff to foreign countries. It had to end, just like Trump had to end the trade imbalance and get back hundreds of billions from China that almost every few months they're robbing from us. This is not about political platitudes. Let me ask you a question. Who the fuck gives a rat's ass when it comes to this video, what's being done, and Trump? Other than if you have fucking Trump derangement syndrome. Just like Zionists and Illuminati and seven rays of light from your fucking head shut, why are you twisting this to Trump? Let me give you a wake-up call, Dean. This is about the United States of America. This affects every liberal, every Democrat, every Green Party, every Rock Party, every Weed Party, every Gay Party, every conservative. This affects everybody. And what you draw out of this, seeing all the stuff come to fruition, is an opportunity to post and bitch about Trump? And you wonder why America's getting its ass handed to us and we're being turned into battery units? Is because they've been able to divide us. They've been able to focus you on people. Orange man bad. I will shall focus my time on that while they take over the government. This is a wake-up call, folks. And that's the reason I'm playing you this historical piece. Because I could tell you this all day long. Your trolls would be all over it and you wouldn't believe it. That's why this is about history. Playing it for you. So you know it's already here. Posing as non-militants for the purpose of getting free military training and for gaining access to critical military supplies and heavy weapons. And then, finally, Robert Williams says this. Any all-out minority revolution must create a state of crisis wherein almost all of the male population would be forced to remain in their homes to protect their property and families. The middle class is very large, but it is not accustomed to deprivation and terror. Because of its affluence, it has waxed soft. It has no stomach for massive fire, blood, and violence. The motive force behind its life drive is its endless pursuit of prestige, conspicuous consumption, and sensual pleasure. A few years of violent, sporadic, and highly destructive uprisings will set the stage for the grand finale. After the stage is properly set through protracted struggle, America could be brought to her knees in 90 days of highly organized, fierce fighting, sabotage, and massive firestorm. Now, ladies and gentlemen, no evaluation would be complete if we failed to note that the communist... So, Dean, if I misread the statement, repost it, I'll reread it. It's gone too fast. If I owe you an apology, I'll be the first person to give it to you. But I kind of read it. That's what I got out of it. Maybe reword it. But I'll acknowledge it. Post it back up. I can't go back and find it. Blueprint calls also for white retaliation and violence 
in the black communities. It's a very important objective for the Communist Party. So far, they've only been able to involve a small percentage of our Negro people in this war of national liberation. The great majority want no part of it in any form. But the one sure way to change that is to have white vigilante groups striking into the Negro sections supposedly to seek revenge. We mustn't kid ourselves into thinking that the communists have placed their agitators only into the black communities. They're working both sides of the street. They want hatred, violence, and bloodshed between the races, and they don't care how they get it or whom they use, even children if necessary. Part of the plan calls for commando squads of black... So, Dean, if this is it, as Jan Kendall Meyer says, Dean didn't say NAFA was a business-killing deal, then he asked then asked who got rid of it, then answered Trump W. If that's the case, you're exactly correct. And I profusely apologize because NAFTA was a business killing deal. And Dean, if that's what you were saying, you are right on. I retract it. But anybody out there that thinks NAFTA was great, feel free to temporarily be a trans dean and absorb my pissed off them in his stead. Let's go back. Black revolutionaries to drive into the white residential areas and shoot little children playing on the sidewalks for the sole purpose of drawing out of the white communities violent retaliation into the black communities. Now this is extremely important to the communists. They must have it. For in this way, they plan to unite the entire Negro population for protection behind the militant minority. It's not a very pretty picture, but it's one we need to understand so that no matter what happens to us or to our families, God willing, we'll have the strength at least to avoid doing anything that would play further into the hands of the communists. Ladies and gentlemen, the plans and preparations for a communist revolution of force and violence are far advanced. The organization behind these preparations has almost unlimited financial resources, and it provides both training and leadership based upon years of experience in many other countries. So, Dean, as I said I would do, uh, your statement, a lot of people, I got it wrong. It happens. I got it wrong. I was. You said I was stating NAFTA was an American business killer. You are right. Trump rid us of it. You are right. I watched my family lose a lot because of NAFTA. Uh, Dean, I owe you an apology. I completely misread that in the flurry. Thank you for accepting my apology. Our enemies are deadly serious about their task. And it's nothing short of national suicide for us to continue to ignore their plans and their progress. Well, all right, having said this, now I'm going to qualify it somewhat by turning to conclusion number three. As important as the strategy for violent revolution is, and it certainly cannot be overstressed, nevertheless, the strategy for nonviolent revolution is even more important to the communists and more potentially fatal to us. So let's turn next to that part of the total picture. Ladies and gentlemen, as pointed out previously, 
The communists can never hope to come to power over the entire United States through a so-called war of national liberation of a minority population. They can capture a large portion of it, and they can create an awful lot of chaos and destruction everywhere else. But to take the country as a whole will require an entirely different approach. The violent revolution becomes a primary value to the communists to the extent to which it can be used to condition the masses psychologically to accept the nonviolent revolution, which is offered supposedly as the only alternative. Hoping to avoid further violence and bloodshed, the public is to be pressured into accepting measures that will move the country gradually and legally toward communism, but without calling it that. The strategy of... So let's talk about this point. He says violence will get out of control. Violence will not be policed because they want it to happen. We've seen that with Black Lives Matter. We've seen that with Antifa. It has scared the hell out of everybody. And as this keeps on happening, because our unholy trinity between government, media, and academia, and they fuel this fire, and a few people go off, what is our government doing? Wanting to take away our guns. This is how they fuel the fire continually. This is why they let Democrat cities run out of control. This is why they pushed gang violence into the the category of mass shootings. It used to be all gang violence. But if it's three or more, they call it mass shootings now instead of things at school because they want you to think everything's falling apart because they need our guns from us. And so the violence, the disruption, the non-enforcement of the laws of the United States of America is a ploy to upset us and to make things go out of control. So they, when things are out of control, wait for us to physically respond so they can enforce new laws that don't fix that, but absolutely suppress us. That is why you have to understand how this works. And that is why I spend so much time on psychological warfare and that we can't respond that way. We have to respond. What we're doing now, fighting this digitally, Fight it with knowledge because you can't fix it if you don't understand how it works. And that's why we have to face this. We don't want to hear this crap, but we have to face it because it's one massive psychological warfare trying to get us to tip over the edge and we must stay strong and focus. And that focus in my book is still election integrity of the proletarian revolution calls for the quiet conversion of our government into a communist regime, but under the banner of socialism. Well, what is socialism? All right, let's define it. According to the dictionary, socialism is a political concept based upon the principle of government ownership and control of property, the means of production, and the avenues of commerce. But the important thing, as far as this presentation is concerned, is how do the communists define it? And this is where many people are surprised to learn 
that the communists have an entirely different meaning for the word socialism than the average American has. Did you know that there isn't a single communist country in existence anywhere on earth? That's right, not one. Russia isn't a communist country. Red China isn't. Cuba certainly isn't. These are socialist lands. That's how communist leaders always describe them. You see, according to the teachings of Karl Marx, communism will come to this world only in some future utopian era when men will have learned to live together in perfect harmony, when they'll no longer be greedy or competitive, when they'll want to share equally with their fellow human beings and have nothing better than anyone else. When this comes to pass, there'll no longer be any need for police or for government of any kind. And then he said, the state will wither away. When that happens, said Marx, it will be communism. In the meantime, comrades, whenever we come to power, we shall call it socialism. So the next time you hear a communist spokesman stand before a college audience or a TV camera and say innocently that all the communists are doing here in America is working for socialism, you must understand what he means by that word. What he's really saying is all the communists are doing is trying to bring to America exactly the same thing they now have in the Soviet Union and Red China. <laughs> now they can call that socialism if they want to. But most Americans, I think, would describe that over there as communism. The uh, new program of the Communist Party on this subject has this to say. The term socialism describes but the first stage of a new society that in its full development is called communism. Socialism is a transitional stage. Well, the important question, though, is why do the communists promote socialism? Is it merely because they honestly believe that it's a necessary transitional stage to some higher, more perfect form of society? I don't think so. I doubt very much if the communist leaders believe their own fairy tale. And I'm sure they're not so naive as to believe that their present super state is ever really going to wither away. But they promote socialism just the same because they know that socialism, by definition, means control over people. If the government owns and controls all property, all means of production, and all avenues of commerce, then it controls all people. If we're dependent upon the government for our food, our clothing, our shelter, our jobs, our medical care, then we're far more effectively controlled by those who hold political power than if they stood over us with soldiers and weapons. Some years ago, I happened to attend a meeting where several anti-communist refugees from behind the Iron Curtain were called upon to relate their personal experiences. Some of the questions that came from the audience were rather naive, I suppose, because finally, one of the refugees spoke up and he said, you know, you Americans have funny ideas about life under communism. Apparently, you think there's a communist soldier standing on every street corner with a rifle and bayonet to keep the people in line. But this isn't so. He said, oh, sure, in the beginning there were plenty of soldiers and executions and deportations to slave labor camps, but we don't see much of that anymore. The open violence lasted only for about a year or a year and a half, and then the anti-communist leadership was liquidated. And now to the casual observers, there's a great deal of apparent calm and freedom. For instance, he said,
sure, police came out, took things over, arrested people, but the resistance to socialism was liquidated. That was somebody who came from a communist country, an immigrant, explaining how it works, and said all the hell broke loose for about a year. The government focused on the people that they thought was a threat that didn't want this communism coming, locked them all up, liquidated them, and then the government just stopped talking about it, and everybody thought everything was okay because they had already taken over the government and the laws. In case you didn't pay attention this week, every single one on the uh, the Trump election integrity team, all the attorneys, everything research, everybody researching the election integrity and preparing a defense has been put under subpoena and raided. That's what it means. You need to understand just how familiar this is, just how close we are, which is why I'm playing this for you. I lived in the largest city in the country. We had a large park there directly across the street from a beautiful church. He said they left one church open, one in the entire country, primarily for guided tours of visiting Americans who had come to see if religion was being persecuted. He said, anytime I wanted to, I could have gone into that park, stood on a bench, and spoken out against communism. Then I could have walked across the street into that church and knelt down in prayer, and I wouldn't have been arrested or bothered in any way. But you can be sure I did not do these things, because if I had, the very next day, the wheels of the bureaucracy would have begun to turn, and I would have been informed that my quota of food stamps had been cut that my allotment for clothing and shoes had been reduced, that my allocation for living quarters had been downgraded, and finally, that my job assignment had been changed from the kind of work for which I'd been trained to menial labor. Does a social credit score make sense now? Does getting rid of the dollar and going to a digital economy make sense now? They need you because you're a battery unit. But this is why they're doing what they're doing, pushing what they're pushing. It's why social media, you don't want to lose your social media. It's a punishment. They'll just punish you. But as our food factories across the United States go down in flames, as they said they would, they would attack. He covered it earlier. As our food supply gets shut down, as our prices go up and the government wants to take care of us, they'll just start punishing you for what you say. All this social media mandate stuff was just the test, getting you used to the government doing it. That's why November is so important, because they'll accelerate it. 
This is the grand plan. Lower pay. So none of us did any of those things that we were theoretically entitled to do because of the tremendous power that the Communist Party had over our economic existence. And then he said something that I'll never forget. He hesitated for a moment and weighing his words very carefully so as not to hurt our feelings, he said, you know, I came to America expecting to find a nation of free men, but instead I find exactly the same thing. Everywhere I look, I see men and women who know that communists are making headway in this country. They know that something must be done and that someone must stand up to them. But they themselves do nothing. They remain silent because they're afraid that if they speak out or take a stand publicly, it'll be bad for business. They may lose a client. They may even lose their jobs. Or perhaps they're receiving a regular government check and already are too dependent upon some of the very people and programs they know they should oppose. And then he said, these men voluntarily have gone behind the Iron Curtain. They're already taken over by the communists. The only difference is that for the present at least, they can still get out any time they really want to, and we could not. I think there's a great lesson to be learned from that because it's true, isn't it? There are many men who are physically brave beyond any question when it comes to standing up against a tyranny that threatens with armies. Some of them carry the actual scars of battle to prove it. But when it comes to this new kind of war, they're lost to the fight. When there is no battlefield, when the weapons are not rifles or bombs, but economic pressures, then who is your enemy? How do you fight? Where do you begin? It's precisely for these reasons that any modern dictatorship must have control over the economic sphere of all human activity. This was true of Nazism, it was true of fascism, it's true of communism, and it's also true of socialism. Regardless of what name we give it, total government control is by definition totalitarianism. That's what the word means. Now, Leon Trotsky, as you recall, was one of the original Bolsheviks who led the communist revolution in Russia. In 1937, Trotsky wrote a book entitled The Revolution Betrayed. And in this book, here's what he said. The basis of bureaucratic rule is the poverty of society in objects of consumption. When there is enough goods in a store, the purchasers can come whenever they want to. When there is little goods, the purchasers are compelled to stand in line. When the lines are very long, it's necessary to appoint a policeman to keep order. Such is the starting point of the power of the Soviet bureaucracy. It knows who is to get something and who has to wait. And ladies and gentlemen, there's no better description than that of why the communists work to promote socialism. No matter whose definition you use, under socialism, those who run the government, and the communists are confident that in America they eventually will be the ones who do so, those who run the government will know who is to get something and who has to wait. And that represents control 
over human beings. I've talked a lot about this one topic. This is why I strongly recommended stop using Q in your post. Stop thinking that uh, an army is going to come save you and there's a super secret military coming to do it. Those were all mind-screwing, stand-down operations to have you sit on your hands, especially when everybody needed to fight for election integrity and audits of the election and stay on it. And so many people said, don't worry about this. Q's got it. The Army's got it. In a day now, in a day now, in a week now, in a month now, in a year now, in two years now, holy fucking shit, they're at my front door. That's the plan, folks. All of that was a stand-down plan. Here we are 16 months after the Arizona audit began, 22 months after the election. And so many people stood down. And so many people, don't worry, don't worry. There's a secret super plan. He's going to be back in the White House this day. Trust me, trust me. I have my anti-secret intelligence. Oh, don't worry about full forensic audits. They're too hard. Just canvas. We'll get it done. Or Republicans saying, don't talk about fixed elections. It pisses people off. It'll be fine. Just show up. And here we are. And here we are. Distract and conquer. You're right. As we all wanted audits, wanted detailed investigation, forensic work, but let other people decide our destiny. And you should have known when people went around to senators and reps and everything else and told them, all oh, that's crap. You don't need a forensic audit. Sharpie gate, that's nothing. That's a lie. That's a joke. Oh, they're just con men. They're just grifters. And primarily, this country stood down. And here we are knocking on the door of November. Our eyes are open. Our hearts are hurting. Our souls are hurting. But the fight's not over. What has all this to do with the communist revolution in America? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it has everything to do with it because the building of socialism is the communist revolution in America. It represents the process whereby our country can be moved gradually toward communism without the people even being aware of it. No matter what grievance we may have, real or imagined, no matter what national problems we may face, the communists seize upon these as excuses to build socialism. They have one and only one solution for all problems. More government, more government, and then more and more until it's total government. And forgive me for saying it one more time, 
total government is communism. Again, let's turn to the record. Shortly after the Watts riot in 1965, the Communist Party brought out this pamphlet entitled The Watts Upsurge, a Communist Appraisal, and here is what it said. The challenge of the Watts explosion can be met only by a truly massive program, a vast increase in the investments in the War Against Poverty program. What is called for is not only a total economic opportunity program for wiping out unemployment and for proper job training, but a program for the total reconstruction of the area. Now, the People's World, the official West Coast newspaper of the Communist Party, in its August 28, 1965 issue, ran this rather interesting editorial. What is needed now is an effort that begins to approximate the magnitude of the problem. As a minimum, such a program should demand massive emergency action by the federal government. Well, then, six months later, after this particular article, the Communist Party came out with this. It's called the new program of the Communist Party, but this was the first draft, published in 1966. And here's what it said. We favor full use of federal powers to achieve these objectives. Now, as I read this, uh, listen carefully to see if it doesn't sound familiar, perhaps like something you've heard from more respectable sources. Government assumption of responsibility for assuring a guaranteed annual wage. Complete cradle-to-the-grave social insurance coverage, including all medical care. Equal educational opportunities for all, with acceptance of the principle of student stipends. A national reconstruction plan to end ghettos and slums. Did he say free medicine? Free health care? Free school? Everybody get a little bit of an income. Sound familiar, folks? This is 50 years ago, reading out loud the publications before they went underground. And here we are. And provide the nation with a modern rapid transit system operated as a public service and passage of a National Youth Act that will ensure education, vocational training, and employment at decent wages for the younger generation. Does that sound familiar? Well, ladies and gentlemen... I just want to point out how freaking ironic. I'm sitting here 53 years after this speech, and I'm saying, does this sound familiar? And 53 years ago, we were being warned of this. One of the very people warning of what was going on, most people don't know, was JFK. If it reminds you somewhat of the Great Society, it's because it is the Great Society, lock, stock, and barrel. Gus Hall, head of the Communist Party, explained it this way. This is the January 24th, 1965 issue of The Worker, and Gus Hall said, The communist attitude toward the great society can be summarized in an old saying, 
that two men sleeping in the same bed can have different dreams. We communists support every measure of the great society concept because we dream of socialism. And when you recall what Gus Hall means when he says socialism, then you realize that the communists support the welfare programs of the great society, the New Deal, the New Frontier, or whatever they decide to call it in the future, because they dream of bringing communism to America through these programs. The next question of importance is how do the communists promote socialism? Certainly it takes far more than a mere declaration of intent, more than writing a few books. How can they bring it off, especially when there are so few of them? How can they manipulate the vast majority into accepting socialism when they really don't want it? Well, here again we find that they have a plan. The strategy... Now this is an interesting one. He poses, how can so few, how can so few get the majority to accept socialism? How could just so few push this on so many? Let's listen. ...is precise and well-tested. It's called revolutionary parliamentarianism. Now, the general strategy employed is a political pincers movement, and these are the terms the communists use to describe it. A pincers movement applying political pressure from above and from below. Now, when they talk about pressure from above, they mean using their people and their influence within the very government marked for takeover to bring forward official recommendations for legislation. These come from the highest possible levels and carry the full prestige of the The recommendations, of course, are offered supposedly as solutions to national problems. But when passed into law, their only real effect is to vastly increase the power of government and to move the country that much closer toward the ultimate goal. The pressure from below then involves using their influence over the various mass membership organizations of the country to create the appearance of great popular support for these recommendations. Of course, the members of those organizations must never suspect that they're being used to promote the communist program. Now, the silent majority, the average person with no particular ax to grind, is caught right in the middle. He looks above and sees highly respected spokesmen for government calling for socialist legislation. He looks below and sees mobs of demonstrators shouting for the same thing. He says to himself, has everyone gone crazy or is it me? Now, he's still in the majority, of course, but he doesn't know it. He thinks he's helplessly outnumbered, and he bows to what he thinks is the democratic will of the majority. All that remains, then, is for the duly elected legislators to place their own careers and political expediency above the best interests of the nation, to yield to this political pressure and pass the legislation into law. Then the whole process starts all over again with new recommendations from above, new demands from below, and finally, new capitulation in the halls of Congress. In this way, the nation can move to the left in giant strides until the ultimate goal of communism itself is reached entirely legally through the constitutional process and in the name 
of the nation. Now, this government pamphlet entitled The New Role of National Legislative Bodies in the Communist Conspiracy is a reprint of two chapters taken from a communist textbook used in Czechoslovakia. It was written by Jan Kozak, the historian and theoretician of the Czechoslovakian Communist Party. This is one of the manuals used to teach communist cadre how the tactic of revolutionary parliamentarianism was used successfully in Czechoslovakia and how it might be applied to other countries as well. So as I read this, even though Kozak is speaking of how they did it in Czechoslovakia, think in terms of how the same strategy might be used or perhaps is being used right here in America. Kozak said, the pressure from above successfully employed by our workers class was the use made of the organs holding powers, the government, parliament, national committees, for bringing about a wide popularization of revolutionary demands and slogans. The fact that such demands and recommendations emanated directly from the highest state organs had a strong influence on their popularization. Whereas pressure from above is the pressure exerted by the organs of the state, pressure from below is the pressure exerted by the popular masses. The united mass organizations, which were led and influenced to a large extent by the communists, represented in this way the direct reserves of the party. All the old proven forms of the struggle were employed, calling of protest meetings, passing of resolutions, sending of delegations, organizing mass demonstrations, and also eventually using strikes, including general strikes. The pressure from below made it impossible for the other parties which had numerical superiority to isolate the communists and to stop the revolution. Thus it made up for the numerical weakness of the revolutionary representatives. Progress toward socialism may take under these circumstances a democratic and constitutional course. All the changes which in their entirety represent a revolutionary transformation of the capitalist society into a socialist one will proceed absolutely legally and in the name of the nation. This is why knowing how this works and knowing that suppression and control and totalitarianism comes in the name of, we just want to help. It's not fair. We're for you. You're suppressed. And they do it by laws. They do it by slow takeover. And there is only one thing that stands in the way of this. Your vote. When they tell you, send in that mail-in ballot, we want to make it easy for you. You don't have to come in. That's part of the rig. Which is why we need to vote in person. That's why I say, as you listen to this, the only thing that matters right now is election integrity. 
and all of the things they have done in the vein of we have to help people is a rig. You don't have time to go in. The lines are too long. Those pins are hard to use. Use these fault ones. Oh, handicapped people, we don't want to insert an oval, a perfect oval with the machine for people who are handicapped because that'd be discriminatory if you saw all perfect ovals. So we have a large supply of ones that look like they're handwritten and you can't tell the difference between those and when somebody votes with a Sharpie. All of that was in the name of protecting the handicapped. This is about voting more. This is about voting in person. This is why it is about election integrity only. We'll let it catch up here. Hang on. Is it possible, do you suppose, that revolutionary parliamentarianism is being used against America today? Is there any evidence of this kind of pressure from above? Well, ladies and gentlemen, all you have to do to answer that question is read some of the official reports and recommendations that have been pouring out in a steady stream for years from the bureaus, special agencies, and commissions of the federal government. Consider, for example, just those reports issued by the various President's Commissions. The President's Commission on Automation, the President's Commission on Crime, the President's Commission on Civil Rights, to name just a few. Now, this is perhaps the most classic recent example. It's the report of the President's National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, better known as the Kerner Report, released to the public in March of 1968. Have you read this? It's incredible. The list of recommendations supposedly to remove the causes of civil disorders in America reads almost identical to the new program of the Communist Party. And that's not much of an exaggeration either. It calls for the vast expansion of all welfare programs and agencies. It suggests absorbing all city, county, and state welfare programs into one gigantic federal welfare program. And why have state socialism when you can have national socialism? It calls for a, a government-guaranteed minimum wage. It calls for federal financing and control of every conceivable sphere of human activity. Education, housing, transportation, even insurance policies. It calls for strict gun control laws and even recommends the creation of a national police force. Well, naturally, it doesn't call it that by name. It refers to it as the National Law Enforcement Center. But there's no doubt as to what its ultimate form will be especially since it's to operate in conjunction with the Defense Department. But the most incredible thing about this report, I think, is not the list of recommendations. That's almost expected from groups of this kind nowadays. The real shocker lies in its findings, the discoveries it made. Here was a body of men, highly respected, with the prestige and financial resources of the federal government at their disposal. Their task was to uncover all of the causes of civil disorders in our land, and to do so impartially with favor or malice to no one, let the chips fall where they may. 
Now, would you suppose that the Communist Party played some tiny, microscopic role in the riots, the campus disorders, the assaults against police? Well, you're mistaken. Just because the leaders of these revolutionary movements carry the Viet Cong flag, pay homage to Che Guevara, travel frequently to Moscow and Peking, preach against capitalism, promote the building of socialism, follow the communist line without deviation, and move in perfect unison in every major city. That doesn't prove anything. According to the Kerner Report, the communists are playing absolutely no role at all in civil disorders. Look it up in the index. Here's a book with over 600 pages of fine print dealing with all of the causes of civil turmoil. And the words communism or communist aren't found even once. Not even to say that they looked into it and found it not to be an important factor, which is the expected cliche today. Apparently, the internal threat of communism is no longer even worth looking into. But what about the other half of the pincers? Is there any evidence of pressure from below? Well, consider the nature of such things as the mass action tactics of the Selma March of 1965, the various peace marches and civil rights marches held in almost every major city in the intervening years, the Poor People's Campaign and Resurrection City. What are these? Do they truly represent an expression of the majority of Americans, or are they merely well-organized pressure groups putting on an impressive show to create the illusion of vast popular support. And what effect does this have on Congress? Every time there's a new show of strength, doesn't Congress buckle under the political pressure and pass into law the recommendations previously made by some commission or agency of the federal government? And hasn't the silent majority been caught between these pincers? And hasn't the country been taking giant strides to the left through our constitutional process and in the name of the nation? The entire process was best described, I think, by Martin Luther King. He wrote an article for Saturday Review, which appeared in the April 3, 1965 issue. And here is how he described it. The goal of the demonstrations in Selma, as elsewhere, is to dramatize the existence of injustice and to bring about the presence of justice by means of nonviolence. Long years of experience indicate to us that Negroes can achieve this goal when four things occur. One, nonviolent demonstrators go into the streets to exercise their constitutional rights. Two, racists resist by unleashing violence against them. Three, Americans of conscience, in the name of decency, demand federal intervention and legislation. And four, the administration under mass pressure initiates measures of immediate intervention and remedial legislation. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a perfect description of how pressure from below is being used in America today to further the nonviolent proletarian revolution. You know, it always bothers me when I have to agree with the communists. It doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while, I'll read something in the communist press that is 100% correct. It comes out in their favor even without their having to lie about it. And here's an example. 
In the People's World, the January 29, 1966 issue, the Communist said, the problem is that the power structure that runs both of the old political parties seems to have great difficulty in comprehending what is taking place in the Negro freedom movement. They don't know a revolution when they see one. And all I can say to that is amen, they sure don't. They call it everything under the sun except a revolution. And they're the same people by and large who still tell you it can't happen here. Ladies and gentlemen, not only can it happen here, not only is it happening here, but it has been happening here for years. The problem is that most of us haven't been able to recognize a revolution in all of its forms when we saw one. Very sobering. Very hurtful when you realize this is from 53 years ago. I want to remind you, this is the absolute nature of mankind. We do not learn until our backs are against the wall and we hurt unbearably. Well, we are... With our backs against the wall, we have been beat to shit. We are hurting collectively very much now in our souls. We're hurting for our children. We're hurting for our grandchildren. Our kids have been taught to worship social media and aspire to be that and just be liked. And in that quest to be liked, they've learned not to stand for anything or piss anybody off. We've devalued our army. We've devalued our police. We have an administration that mocks both and says, get rid of them. We never believed this could happen to us. Many don't believe it has happened to us. I share this because this is what we're facing. This is not a one-off about 2020. This is something that has been in the works for an incredibly long time. This is why they introduced hyphens in African-Americans and everything else like this. This is why they break their laws and enforce them on us. This is it. This is what they do. And we are on the last legs, truly, of being taken over and being socialist, and they never really fired a shot. And you're right. This is how we're undervaluing ourselves and our children with pronouns. It's why somebody can be a frog or frogs. This is it. This is the full court press, folks. And only one thing fixes it. Election integrity. Period. Only one thing fixes it. Election integrity. And it is not too late. Too late is when it's already freaking done and we are socialist. 
We're not there yet. We're not there yet. You need to get as many people as you can to watch this and to understand it. I think this is a watershed moment where people can watch this and understand and go, holy shit, I had no idea. And this is why I've always told you it's about being peaceful and diligent and standing up and fighting a digital war. And we are still a majority and we must act like it. But we have to get together and do this. We have to stay focused on the one thing that matters. One thing that matters. Election integrity. And that's why I came down so hard tonight. Rothschild, Zionists, and all that crap. Those are distractions. Do not be distracted. We have a uniparty. We do not have two parties. They have been infiltrated. Our institutions have been infiltrated, but we still outnumber them. And we win this by being awake, now understanding that we're in the midst of a revolution, now understanding this is a revolution, a digital revolution, now understanding this is a digital war like I've told you the whole time, And now understand why I told you don't leave all the social media platforms beyond them all. Because when you leave and you go talk in a collective group that says the same thing, they also cut off your voice and you did it willingly. And they did it to us. And that's why you have it to be out there. Now, some of you may ask, how do I manage to stay on social media? Real simple. They've kicked me off several times. I've had to fight to stay on. The only one I permanently lost now is YouTube. But I know how to ride the line of the words that the artificial intelligence looks for in the titles and in what is first played. You ever wonder why I play so many opening videos and why I play bumpers and people bitch? Why don't you just play your show without that stuff? Just come on and talk. Because I understand how the systems work and what they're listening for, and how long they listen to try to get an idea of what you're talking about. And I do my best to beat them at their own game. We are winning this, folks. We are winning this. We have the goods. We have the information. And I know you're getting tired. I know you're getting worn out. But all I've ever asked you to do is use that one finger and share, 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 and fight. It's an education war. But I'm telling you, the only thing that matters is election integrity. And to never give up, you're right. I love you all. Have a great evening. Thanks for tuning in with me. There are other lectures I may do this way. And go through them, but this is how we will keep archive footage like this out there by doing it in this type of treatment where the systems don't recognize it and we get it out there. But I want to remind you, we've been here before and we will win. 
And we've got all the right in the world on our side. And there ain't no reason to be afraid. And there ain't no reason to not take the challenge dead on. Because I'm going to tell you who we come from, folks. We don't come from some weak, jellyback, spineless people. That's not who we come from. None of us. And it doesn't matter what color you are, what nation your folks hail from, how much money you got. We all share the same name. We are Americans. And at Bunker Hill, there was Americans. And at Fredericksburg and Gettysburg, there was Americans. And at Iwo Jima, raising that flag on Sarabachi, it was Americans. And at Porkchop Hill, there was Americans. Quezon, there was Americans. And on 9-11, there was Americans who ran towards those burning buildings. That is who you share your heritage with. You do not share your heritage with a weak and ineffective people who cower at the side of trouble. You share your heritage with a strong and brave people who are determined to hold on to their freedom and for the freedom of future generations. Guys, it's time for us to stand up and be that generation. It's time for us to stand strong and proud to remember who we are, that we are Americans. And as long as we stand as the vanguard of freedom in this nation, Freedom will survive. Not only survive, but survive. So guys, it's time to put on a pack. It's time to fix those bayonets. It's time to get ready. We got a fight on our hands. And our fight is not for us. For all those generations that's going to come behind. Let's save America, folks. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all 